Hello and welcome to a new episode of Five. Today I invited Molly Johnson-Jones, who is the co-founder of Flexa Careers, a startup based in London. For us, entrepreneurship is not necessarily about starting or running a business. It's a state of mind, a principle of life, and an approach to dealing with problems. This is Five, your university podcast on female entrepreneurship by the Munich University of Applied Sciences and the Strasheg Center for Entrepreneurship. We strongly believe in diversity. It's just so much more fun and exciting. Diversity in food, in cultures, in places, ways of living, learning, creating, and doing things. It's this desire to explore that we all have in us to see new things. And yes, to be curious to look what's behind the next corner. So, uh, hi, Molly. Hi. <laughs> so good to have you here in our podcast five. And I'm very glad that we can talk today. And so you're based uh, in London with your startup Flexa Careers. And I actually met you through LinkedIn where I was like following your great posts and I really like uh, what you're posting there and I was interested in your story and so maybe just for our listeners so Molly um, has been already doing quite a lot of stuff at the age of 28 I would say so <laughs> doing like some research jobs some consulting jobs being like an UX researcher and then finally decided to co-found her own startup. So I would be interested to know, like, how did that all happen? And why, why were you in the end motivated to go into the entrepreneurial journey? Good question. Um, I don't think I've had a particularly linear career pathway um, in any way at all. So um, I went to uni and studied geography. And I thought that I wanted to go into investment banking. I think often when you're At uni, you see um, certain jobs in front of you and you don't realize that actually once you get to a company, there are lots of other opportunities. But, you know, you kind of think doctor, lawyer, accountant, investment banker, like in a very um, structured kind of box way. So I went into investment banking and um, I went there for about 18 months in equity research. And I've actually had an autoimmune disease since I was about 80. Um, so going into a high stress, long hours environment probably wasn't the best for my health, but I did it anyway. <laughs> and um, after being there for 18 months, I my health started to get a bit worse. So I um, sometimes I can't can't walk um, when my autoimmune disease flares up and like my hands and joints swell up and things, and my feet as well, so I can't stand. Um, and that used to happen about once a week. So I asked to work from home once a week when that did happen. And obviously this was back in, 2016 so that wasn't normal at all um but I thought they said they were open to flexible working requests so I thought I'd ask and 10 days later they put a settlement package in front of me sacked me and told me to leave immediately so I then felt that I should no longer be in investment banking <laughs> <laughs> um and started to look at jobs that maybe would have a similar skill set um but that would allow me to have a little bit more flexibility rather than having to be in the office at 6.30 in the morning every day and not leave till 10. 
Um, so I moved into market research and just throughout that process, I found it really difficult to find which companies would allow me to work from home without it being stigmatized or feeling like maybe I was perceived as working less hard. So that went on for a while um, until in 2019, I ended up at a very flexible company um, and my partner, Morris, who's actually, you can see him <laughs> sitting behind me, also my co-founder, he was working at a super flexible company um, before it was normal. So in 2017, um, they started letting everybody work from home two days a week. And his team that he was managing were more productive, happier, stayed at the company longer in terms of retention. Um, so we started talking about that. They weren't publicizing it. I needed the information. Millions of people need that information. You know, where's gonna let you work from home sometimes? Where's fully remote? Where will let you bring your dog to the office? Where has enhanced paternity or maternity leave? Where has work from anywhere schemes? You know, all of those things. And we decided to create a platform that gets companies discovered for the things that people really want and care about, which is where Flexa came from. Yes, so great. So you kind of like went from like an own problem sort of uh, and created like a solution for the problem that you were facing through your startup idea, I would say. So Flexa Career started in 2019, if I'm informed correctly. And maybe tell us a bit, like in a brief, like what is Flexa Careers? What do you do and how do you define actually flexible working as like a term? Yeah, uh, flexible working is such a difficult term to give a definition to, um, which is part of the reason that we even started the business in the first place. So we define flexible working as a multitude of factors. So we've built two different indices that measure exactly what flexibility is um, based on hundreds of thousands of data points from employees that work at flexible companies and in flexible companies and the HR leaders and, and people leaders themselves. So when a company comes to us and we say, yes, you are or aren't flexible, that's done through a two-stage benchmarking process. The first one is very objective, what do you offer? And that's based on like location, uh, hours, benefits, some key cultural indicators as well that we've found through a lot of research. And the second one is with employees, like do you feel supported? Have you had to request things? Has anything ever been turned down? Is there anything that you would love but you don't have? And all of that's benchmarked against two different weighted indices. So a company has to score over 60% to be eligible to be on Flexa. What that means um, is that we are a talent attraction and employer brand platform. So a company will be on Flexa. They'll put their correct filters on. So they might be three days a week at home and you can bring your dog to the office when you do come in and there's flexible hours available. They have a company page that explains all about that, exactly what it's like to work at that company in terms of culture, purpose um, and employee feedback as well. And then users will come on. And we currently have just coming up to about 350,000 users just under um, all over the world in 57 different countries. And they will come on and they'll put those filters on that they want. Um, we call that the secondary search. So normally people would search for a job like, I want a marketing manager job. And they'll just see thousands of job descriptions in front of them and they won't know what the company does or definitely won't know what it's like to work there. Whereas we bring all of that information to the very forefront. Um, so companies get discovered by hundreds of thousands of people that are looking for that working environment rather than just a few hundred people who come across their job description. And it means that our users on the D2C side get the actual information that they want upfront rather than wasting time applying and only finding it out once they get to the interview stage. Yeah, I think that's like super beneficial 
for both like the employer and the employees like to also save up on a lot of time like wasting in the recruiting process I guess <laughs> and um, maybe tell us a bit like how is like the business model of Flexa Careers is it like based on the the companies are they paying a specific fee or the users or how do you make that um, company work yeah so on the D2C side with the users, it's completely free. You don't even have to register to search. Um, you can just look through all those companies as you come on to flexa.careers. And then on the, D2, on the B2B side, um, it's the companies that pay us a kind of membership fee for the year to be assessed, to get those, those tailored insights, to have that company page, to have all of their roles pulled through onto Flexa and also to do the employer brand collaborations that we do, like webinars, interviews, videos, blogs, um, that we then drive traffic to through all of our social channels. What is your like broader vision for the, I mean, you're tackling sort of like a industry shift. Uh, like I think I saw a lot of posts also on your profile about the, um, I think you named it like, or like the, great resignation and um so how do you see like the vision or the real goal for um flexa careers on like a bit of a uh, uh, super um birds perspective level let's say the ultimate goal is to bring transparency to the global job hunting process so you know you could be sitting at home in Amsterdam and you think oh I really want to move to New York but I know that I need to work from home a couple of days a week and I really don't like mornings so I want flexible hours so I can start later and finish later and I'm bringing my dog with me but I can't put him into doggy daycare every day where do I go and you'll know in New York there are these companies that will exactly suit what you want to do um, and to just to remove the opacity that exists like it shouldn't be so difficult to find out about a company you shouldn't have to apply to a hundred different places only to get through to interview with 10 of them and then have to ask all of these questions once you've spent days looking for that right company and on the flip side companies that have great working environments and they've invested that time money energy care into creating them they shouldn't be lost in the noise of the hundreds of thousands of companies that exist and don't offer great working environments so bringing transparency on a global level will benefit the companies that should be rewarded for having great environments and the users that are genuinely searching for it which is now 81% of people so it's massive yeah so maybe t tell us a bit about this term that i just introduced like the great resignation like what is the yeah. trends that you can see on the um employee market right now and um what what it what does it actually mean also for companies and maybe yeah add some if you have like some recommendations even like for companies that they should address uh sooner than yeah. later <laughs> yeah i already need to start addressing it <laughs> um so the great resignation is really interesting it's a, a term that was coined by an associate professor at texas a&m university called anthony klotz who's actually on a webinar with us a few months ago he's a really interesting guy and um he basically started to see a trend in American um, employment data, which suggested that people throughout the pandemic hadn't moved jobs because they were obviously concerned about security, concerned about risk, um, and felt that it wasn't really the time to be job hunting and just to stay put was the safest option. 
But obviously that then meant that there was a backlog of people that weren't very happy. And then compounding with that was um, a global population getting used to working from home and working flexibly and having more freedom and more choice. And that um, amalgamated into the Great Resignation, where as soon as lockdown restrictions were eased a bit, kind of summer of last year, people started to feel much more comfortable and resignations peaked to like literally an all time high since the data was seen to be closed in the 1980s. Um, now, the, now the US is, is a good few months ahead of Europe and the UK in that, but the data is trending in the same direction. And just the same as all of the surveys that are done around um, what people now care about when they're looking for a job. People care about work-life balance. They care about flexibility. And over 60% of people will consider leaving their jobs if they are not offered more freedom and more choice in their working environment. So um, the Great Resignation is driven by a lot of different forces. Like some of it is progression and pay and the purpose and the culture of the company they're at. But one of the primary factors is that lack of flexibility. Um, they don't, people don't want to go back to the way that they were working pre-pandemic. And of course, not everybody wants to be fully, fully remote either. It's about finding that balance in between of a bit of in-office and in-person time, but also the ability to choose sometimes and not to be told, oh, you have to be here from nine till six. So what companies can do to avoid the great resignation and potentially even benefit from it, we call it the great reshuffle. Obviously, people have to go somewhere, but it's going to be a bit like musical chairs. You know, some people want to work remotely, they'll go to the remote companies. Some people love being in the office, they'll go to the companies that are in office. Some people want to work hybrid, they'll go to those companies. And that's going to be a big reshuffling. So the most important thing that companies can do is publicise exactly what their working environment is like to allow people to make an educated decision about whether they want to work for you. It will speed up the hiring process. It will allow you to attract the right people. You won't get as much attrition. Um, but obviously also make sure that what you are publicising is an appealing proposition. So a level of flexibility and location, time, good benefits, fair pay um, and a good company culture. You know, it's being it's being sniffed out by people now. There are companies that people don't want to work for. Um, so there'll be a big focus on employer brand over the next sort of 12 months. And I can't emphasise the importance of being transparent about what it's like to work at your company more. Obviously, that's why we started Flexo, because you can actually do that. Yeah, very, very good insights. And I think uh, everyone who is sort of in this kind of business environment, which is like still targeting like specific kind of jobs. I mean, there's like a lot of jobs that don't allow that flexibility that much. Like if you look into more like craft jobs or like that are or working in a shop environment and so on. So I guess we talk a lot about like digital um, jobs sort of. Uh, and um, but still like in this, like as we uh, all experienced um, through the pandemic, how uh, work completely changed <laughs> in that uh, what previously was thought of can never be done like working from home suddenly became like very normal and um, employees were willing to also for their employers to uh, step into that new role and make the best out of this um, pandemic decision so I guess now they would expect also a bit of like something sort of in return like uh, like to have it more like as like an equal um, um, 
how how do you say, relationship sort of uh, in that sense that some a lot of be- about communication and also being asked like uh, how how did you feel during that time what would you need um, how do you see Uh, to to develop and progress in the future with our company and that might be like something very the answer might be very individual um at least that's also something i can see in our own company that as you said like some tend to to be more like on site and really love that and going together for lunch with the colleagues others are more like in the hybrid mode it depends a lot on the personal situation and that wasn't very considered before like everyone was like standardized and be like you have to be there no matter if you're like commuting for hours or if you have a immune disease like you have or if you have children or other obligations and so on so i guess um it's a very uh beside many <laughs> negative trends <laughs> that came with the pandemic that could be considered definitely a plus that this shift was made so fast i guess um which would have taken otherwise like another 10 years most likely <laughs> yeah i think you know this has been such a catalyst for it and you're right there's been an appreciation of the fact that people aren't just resources like they have got lives and i think we've almost moved past the notion of work-life balance and trying to often unrealistically balance the two towards the idea of work-life blend where they're inextricably linked in your own personal situation in your own personal lives will of course impact how and when and where you do your work and I think that the companies that embrace that and they see those things as good diversity and assets to have different people they're the ones that will ultimately outperform end up more productive and more successful but there are still come plenty of companies that don't see it like that. And they still want people to think, oh gosh, I'm so lucky to have this job and I will forever be loyal to my employer no matter what they do to me. Um, whereas actually in, in reality, the power balance, particularly of skilled people who are good at their jobs, they have the pick of any company at the moment because it's so difficult to hire because everyone's leaving. Yeah, it's ultimately, I guess, a lot about trust also. Like, are you trusting each other <laughs> in that sense? And yeah, maybe another topic that I'd like to touch a bit upon is that you were kind of like posting uh, several posts about like your learnings from your founding rounds. And I um, I think um, you just closed your second founding round, if I'm right, and um And as we have this uh, thing called five, so we always have this question with like five uh, key learnings, five key elements. I thought that might be a, a good question like um, about this. What did you learn, f- like your five key learnings from doing your founding rounds? Because you already mentioned some on your post and I thought that uh, this could be also interesting to a lot of um, other founders uh, who are just like in the same position, like they have an idea, they start off and then it's all about getting money to grow and then you have to uh, throw yourself into the <laughs> this process. And yeah, what did you learn from your founding rounds? Oh, so much. Fundraising is such a hard process. Um, so that's probably the first thing I learned. It's way harder than you'll ever think it will be. 
um yeah you think it's gonna be difficult in your head and you're like yeah hey, i know that's going to be a challenge but like it was so much harder than we expected it to be um so never underestimate how difficult it is that's definitely something i learned uh second thing i learned was that it takes a lot longer than you expect it to yeah you think oh i'll have some first first conversations in the first month and then go through with the second month and then people will do some due diligence and maybe i'll close it in like four months no <laughs> i think i was took like eight months i think long time um so that's the second thing that i definitely learned i think the third thing i learned is that um VC talking to VCs and angels is very different. So if you're looking at institutional investment from VCs, um, it's a whole different ball game. You know, they want the giant opportunities. They want to see that you can be a unicorn and that they're going to make millions, hundreds of millions of pounds from you. Um, whereas with angels, when you're talking to private individuals, they want to buy into your vision and you and believe in you and see, yes, I can make a big return from this. But is it something I believe in? personally so the difference between the two types of investors was very stark and we have a mixture of institutional and private individual money in both of our rounds so we had to balance the kind of two sides of that which is something that um every investor should kind of always bear in not investor sorry every founder should um bear in mind i think it's that difference they're out for different things uh trying to think five now the fourth that i would say is that um being a woman is a real negative in the process and I never thought that I would really say that it was always I think when I was younger I was naive in the sense that I thought that it was all a level playing field I, I was in investment banking and that was a very male dominated industry and it wasn't that hard for me to get there but I think I was I was naive that I hadn't properly looked around and realized that actually there are still so many obstacles and that was particularly stark for me when I started the fundraising process um just people would talk to me completely differently and ask different questions to the the questions that they would ask morris if they asked the question and i answered it they'd talk back to morris not me um you know you read so much about how um female founders get asked about when they'll be having children and whether this is just a business that they can have so that they can work part-time when they eventually start a family you know those questions aren't asked to men and there's a real, um, it's a real burden for women to kind of carry and to try and convince investors that, you know, you're just as good and just as able and just as you have just, you have, you know, just as little baggage as a man does, not more. Um, so I think adjusting to that was probably one of the biggest challenges and not accepting it, trying to fight against it, even though you know that it's, not going to get you any money it's just more effort and more exhausting but it feels wrong to ignore it and to allow it to remain um and then actually the fifth thing was really interesting so morris and i are a couple um and we didn't think that that would be an issue with investors we were like well loads of founders don't know each other at all and they just start a business together like surely that's worse than people who deal with conflict and have conversations and stuff all the time um and we're used to dealing with arguments and disagreements about how to do things. But um, when we were talking to some angel groups and they were sending out um, our investment deck and memos and things, they, well, British people are too polite to say it. Um, they'll just they'll just ignore you. But they were French investors and um, 
they were very comfortable in saying no I didn't even open the memo because you're a couple and I'm not even looking at it um which we had no idea was a thing and then we kind of read into it and asked some people it's like of course people will naturally project their own relationships onto you and assume that just because they wouldn't want to or couldn't start a relationship a business with their with their partner that that means you can't which I think is a little bit of a narrow minded view because every relationship is different and every person is different and equally you know there are some people that couldn't start a business with their best friend but other people do you know I think people need to look past their own personal bias when it comes to um choosing investments but both on the female side and on the couple side we definitely encountered a lot of personal bias yeah i think like i mean especially like the last two points this is like often being discussed when you look also into research on women's entrepreneurship which i was been doing like the last year like i read a lot on like uh, gender stereotypes and how stereotypes uh, unconsciously affect how we see or um what commune like common beliefs we assign uh let's say or characteristics that we assign to women which is often more like from historically from a more like caretaking um nurturing um being friendly being nice sort of environment which is also still being reflected in many of the measurement scales actually like there's like in research there are like gender stereotype scales that have been developed in like the 70s and 80s. And one famous one is like from Sarah Bam, for example. She's been like a psychologist who came up with like the Bam um, BSRI um, index. And so these are like, and then they assigned like attributes like towards femininity and others to masculinity and so masculinity is however often assigned with like characteristics such as risk taking and being bold and being like uh, uh, adventurous and um so so and when it comes to the entrepreneur um it's more that the entrepreneur is also like viewed as a role that needs like a lot of uh risk taking and being like um um what are the other like yeah being like uh, ad adventurous and, and stepping towards it. So, so that's then when this like uh, lack of fit kind of comes from that people think uh, women uh, like just by how they uh, are kind of like raised through culture, through so socialization and so on. So this is how this lack of fit um, kind of comes up and I, from what I have talked with others is that I guess especially the um, investor um, scene or like is kind of still very not so much so diverse in that sense that so there is still a lot of like maybe traditional and conventional thinking <laughs> that um, and that so, so from my perspective is that only if this um, investor uh, scene and the money kind of is more equally distributed and more people dif with different mindsets might enter this um, 
and that's actually what's slowly happening like with first female investor funds and so on and so forth uh, then it's also going to be um, more um, equitable in regards to who um, which startups are being picked and so um, I really like one that Danish investor um, group uh, two women um, back in Mainz um, they are from oh not Denmark they are from Sweden I met them on or they gave a keynote speech um, in uh, at the Global Entrepreneurship Consortium in, in Stockholm and they actually said we are going for the untapped potential because all other investors have a similar way of thinking so they just go for a similar type of uh, businesses and uh, they are actually doing the opposite and they are very very successful in what they are doing so um, yeah. I think that's a great way to look at it. Um, I think it's really interesting what you said about the stereotypes and what people expect you to be. But I feel like women can't win. So men expect, or often male investors expect, as you said, startup founders, they need to be risk-taking, they need to be adventurous, they need to be confident, they need to be outspoken, which are often associated with male traits, as you said. But it's really interesting. There was a study that was done where um, a computer, so AI, listened to over a thousand pitches, um, mixture of all male or female mixed founders, um, see various different genders. And what it found was that the presence of a woman on the pitching team was neutral at best. When it was neutral, that was because the woman fitted, interestingly, the stereotype that they expected of a woman. So she was warm, friendly, polite, subservient, quiet. And although it should be the other way around, um, the investors actually penalised the women that would be more likely to fit the male stereotype because they felt that it wasn't very feminine. So the women then do fit supposedly the correct stereotype for being a founder were actually the ones that were penalised because they weren't perceived as, you know, it's, it's a confident man as a bossy woman you know, um, a self-assured man as an arrogant woman. You know, there, there's this flip side of, of when a woman displays male traits, she's seen in a negative light and given a much harder time than a man would be with those similar things. And that happened in um, this study. And obviously the computer analysed that and saw that the negative impact was based on the words and the traits that women showed when they were more masculine. So we can't win. We're too feminine to run a business, but when we're not, we're penalised anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I think especially like, I mean, uh, this is probably also true for all stereotypes, you know, that they they are really uh, unhealthy <laughs> for everyone, yeah. like no matter of gender or culture or background, like um, because we no one ever really fits in completely, I guess. And we should just be... Uh, if everyone would be a bit more open and like just you know look at who is in front of me and what do they transmit and is it like something like do we connect and 
uh, through different levels. And no matter if it's a couple or if it's like, you know, which background or which team composition, I think that if you're too biased or like too uh, expecting too many things uh, negatively about like something like you close many opportunities um, also for investors uh, I think um, and I'm also excited to see whether AI or like data can help to make this process a bit to to kind of show these unconscious biases and make them more transparent in that way that we can really see oh <laughs> you think you did you took the right decision, but no, you didn't, you know, like, I, and that I think technology can be something of use and um, especially like these big data and um, AI stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because so often I think the benefit of data is like so often um, these conversations, when especially when it's a, a woman or a minority who obviously they don't have the majority experience Although I do find it ridiculous that women are put in with minorities, given that we are actually 51% of the world, so technically the majority. But in these spaces, we are the minority. Um, I find it very interesting that we have to have data to back up our opinions because we're always told, oh, that's subjective. No, you're just being emotional. That's just an emotional response to that. Um, and so I think more than anything, having data and AI on our side to show, no, there is an inherent bias and the data is undeniable and that's not subjective, that is objective, will be really, really important to our progress and our ability to prove our points rather than being accused of being emotional or being too invested or being bitter because we had a harder time than someone else. Maybe it's because your business is less good. Instead, it'll actually show the obstacles that we that we do face. Yeah, it's easy to just put the burden on the individual <laughs> and be like, uh, yeah. there is none or like, yeah, yeah. like change is something people in general often don't want. And uh, it like we can see with the pandemic, it kind of uh, <laughs> hits us all like in our like we are used to a certain lifestyle and suddenly we have to change a lot and usually many people don't like it and some are better in adapting or and making this new situation towards their own benefit and others they are really struggling because they just hold on to uh, what was before and um, so yeah I think um, that's been really an interesting uh, point and one thing I would like maybe for all the listeners like how did you actually react in those situations when you were in a pitching situation with like an investor confronted with like something because you said that sometimes you just went rather for not closing the deal than like just you know like you you stood up for uh, yourself as a founder and your competence and all the work and energy you put towards it and you wanted to be also valued for that in, in that someone gives you money and not just be like, okay, I take on the uh, like uh, kind of like good looking but rather not so competent role in just to get the money from, <laughs> from, the, from this group of people. So what were your strategies? Yeah. How did you do that? It would have been easier sometimes, yeah, to, to stay quiet and maybe more likely to, to get the investment. And like we definitely had conversations between us as founders. There are three of us, so Morris and I and then Tim, our CTO and technical co-founder. 
we had conversations where we wondered if it was the right thing to do to switch me out because I was leading fundraising and to put Morris in. We almost did a couple of times and then we decided actually why are we doing that because ultimately if somebody doesn't want to invest in the whole team why do we want their money um it kind of didn't sit right and the fact that yes it probably would have made things easier but ultimately I'm the CEO of the company and that's what our current investors wanted because they are very invested in the idea of having a female CEO and co-founder they wanted me to keep that position um so we decided not to change what we were doing but we did come close and i can understand why people would switch it up because it does improve your chances um there were times where it's hard you don't like directly stand up for yourself do you like you're not going to shout at someone um but <laughs> when we had a couple of conversations like a couple of them definitely got a bit heated where like i would answer a question and then they talk back to morris and morris would be like hey, morris, molly was the one that had the answer there um can you talk to her please um and you can tell that people, it wasn't so much our reactions to things, like we've always tried to be very calm about it because I think often getting angry or emotional in some respects can really harm you because then you're seen as the overly emotional woman who's just reacting. So being calm is always better. But then they get very defensive about it because they can tell that they've been picked up on it. So when those kind of conversations were had, we were like, please talk back to Molly, like she's the one who answered the question. They'd be like, yeah, well, wait, I was doing that. I was doing that, you know, very, there was one where we, we had to end the call because they got very um, aggressive, really, for lack of a better word, um, that we'd asked them to stop talking only to Morris and to talk to me because I was leading the call. Um, so dealing with other people's reactions is actually the hardest bit of it rather than mon moderating your own. Because ultimately, you know that it's easy because if someone's a bit of a, an asshole, then you're just not going to take their money. So it's an easy conversation for us to have and to moderate our own responses to, but you never know how someone else is going to react. But we've always just kind of stood our ground and been calm about it and said, you know, call someone out when, it, when it's wrong. Yeah, I think it's really great in that sense that you're a team. So, and that, you know, like uh, your team was bagging you also in in that um, situation and be like addressing <laughs> that uh, you know like she's she, you can just talk to her <laughs> like it's like uh, she just gave you the answer or like in that sense also to reflect oneself and I think um, so starting as a team is like something um, very nice when it comes also to these situations and then being able to talk that out and sometimes be like hey is it just me who found that weird or do you think the same yeah. or like so yeah um i think that's that's really good <laughs> and yeah i think that um from my side um uh i think it was a lovely talk and um uh, i really appreciate appreciated your openness uh, and sharing all your insights with us and I hope that um, our students or our listeners can uh, take some inspiration from that and um, also like maybe to to end like what is um, what motivates you like every day to to be a founder and to also go through the often hard times like founding processes and all that what is like for you the the key motivation the complete fear of failure you do not 
want to let anything drop. You want this to succeed with everything you have because it's your business, because you're solving a problem. I like, I fundamentally believe that what we have can be enormous. But what keeps you going is such a human trait, isn't it? Like what keeps you going isn't the positive stuff, it's the fear. It's the fear of it not working. It's the fear of making a mistake. And so no matter what, you just keep going, even when it's hard, because you can't you can't stop. Yeah, and I guess you ultimately believe a lot in in what you created because that's at least from what I saw in your CV before you like you changed jobs and like you you could yeah. invest here ten months there ten months and so on. But then if you have this like kind of like baby <laughs> as your idea and you put a lot of energy into it, you also want to keep it growing and um, you believe in this transformational power that startups have in that sense to make like a societal impact also and benefit the other employees and I think that's that's great what you're doing and I really like the idea and thank you for uh, being here with us today and talking to you thank you Molly thank you. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to chat to yeah. you thank you so much thanks bye bye this was five your university podcast on female entrepreneurship. We hope that today's episode sparked your curiosity and leaves you feeling inspired and motivated to explore further. Follow us on Spotify, Deezer, iTunes, or Google Podcast to never miss upcoming insights on inspiring startup stories. Thanks for listening, and until next time.